Okay, one, one quick thing. Um, we are starting, I think, tomorrow, 1 Corinthians. So if you are interested in what 1 Corinthians is all about, there's diagrams on the back by the giving box back there. You can grab one on the way out. And here really is today's, here's the topic for today, the thing that we really want to deal with. Um, a triad asked me a few weeks back, really struggling and asking honestly, how do we engage our culture? How do, really, how do we engage our culture? Because the reality is we are living as exiles in a culture right now. That's how I see the main way we're living. We're not in the majority. We don't have the voice that we used to have. And so the question is, is how do we live as exiles in the culture? And... Steve Lowen and I are reading through a book together that's trying to answer that question. And in that book, the author coined a term that I really like, a phrase that you'll see referenced other places sometimes called convicted civility, that we need to live with convicted civility. And he says that more than ever, we need to live with conviction and civility. Conviction meaning that I know and stand on the truth of the word of God, that I, I have that as my conviction but that at the same time, I also know how to engage people civilly with love and kindness and respect. And it's not easy to strike that balance. Some of us are really good at the conviction and we're horrible at the civil. And some are very civil and we're really bad at the conviction thing. Um, but what we want to do is we want to look at Romans chapter 12. So if you want to turn there and we're going to look at verses 9 to 11. Jordan's going to be reading out of the NIV. 9 to 21? Uh, 9 to 21, right. 9 to 11 is pretty short. this thing. Yeah, I really did shorten it up. Just have a three verses. (laughs) Um, So, Jordan, why don't you read Romans 12, uh, verses 9 to 21? Yeah, Romans 12, 9 to 21. And if I was speaking to myself out there, I'm someone who sits out there and kind of week to week, I'm like, will I take notes or not? This is a week to take notes for sure. If you're a note taker, I encourage you to do that because there's going to be a lot that we kind of go through and it... Not that we're so smart or it's so deep, but it may go over your head because we're just kind of talking about a lot. So writing things down, I think, will be key this week. So, yeah, let me read Romans 12, 9 to 21. So it says, love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals upon his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And this is the word of the Lord. Um, Next year, I'm going to speak about the conviction part of the equation this morning, because this text really deals primarily with the living civilly side. That's going to be our focus. He does speak of conviction in verses 9 and 11, where he talks about hating what is evil and clinging to what is good. 
to not be lacking in zeal and keep our spiritual fervor serving the Lord. So he does address it, but that's not Paul's focus. So what we're going to do is we want to we look at this text asking the question, what's this teach me about how to civilly engage a lost culture? That's our question this morning. And if we were to break it down, verses 9 to 13 are about loving the family, people in here. And verses 14 to 21 are about loving, loving people who are outside of the family. Um, I almost hate to use that word outsiders, but that's, that's what we'll use today. So that's kind of the breakdown of this section. I, we don't want to spend a ton of time in the loving the family. We really want to get into this loving the outsiders. But I will say a few things about the first section. First of all, the first word, love must be sincere. It's the first word in English, the first word in Greek. It's agape, um, agape love, which means the steadfast sacrificial zeal that seeks the true good of another. That I'm seeking the true good of another person sacrificially with great zeal and steadfastly. So he says that love must be sincere. The other things he tells us in this community, and I'm, these are serious words. I mean, these are, these are important. He says, be devoted to one another in, in love in verse 10. Honor one another above yourselves in verse 10. In verse 13, share with the Lord's people who are in need. And then in verse 14, four, I mean, in verse, the end of verse 13, sorry, practice hospitality. So that's his commands to the things we're to do with each other in this community. And th those are pretty heavy things, right? So I mean, those four things, be devoted to each other, honor each other, share with each other, and practice hospitality with yep. each other. Yep, those, those four, four things. And another part, while we're on that, that first part, um, as we looked at this this week, verse 12 just stood out to both of us is kind of the main, is like the epicenter of this whole thing. It's the main focus, especially of this first part. And it's, it's so important because those four things you listed, they're so important, but they are actions. They're things that we do to one another. And verse 12 is internal. It's a heart attitude. These are three things that internally I have to be, they have to be settled within me before I can go out and do other stuff. If I try and do these four things and love the body well, if I try and do anything in 14 through 21 and love outsiders well, but I don't have verse 12 under control, if I am not joyful in hope, patient in affliction, and if I'm not faithful in prayer, like that stuff's gonna fail. I may do it well for a week or so, but then I'm gonna catch the new cycle and get angry and I'm gonna lose it. So what I, what I wanted us to do before we get started with the rest of it is just look at 12, if you're a highlighter or an underliner, man, that is so worthy of your notation and your Bible. And just right now, kind of take stock. Um, am I the kind of person who internally, this is where I'm at? Am I joyful in hope? Am I patient in my affliction? Am I faithful in prayer? And if not, this is not like a shame on you kind of thing. That's not at all what it is. It's just, it's like before you take a big trip, you take your car in to the shop and you get it checked out because you're going to do something big and you want to make sure it's ready to go, like that's what this is on verse 12. Like it's kind of a heart check. Before we endeavor to, to not only do 9 through 13 but 14 through 21, like we've got to make sure we're right on the inside. And so maybe just on your own for a second, man, verse 12, is that who I am internally? And if not, I need to make sure that's where I'm at before I try and do the rest of this stuff. And as you kind of look at that, um, just one more quick thing about 12, because I do think it's so important. These three things, man, as you read those, you're like, man, these are not things that I naturally do or things that I feel like culture wants me to do or, or tells me to do ever. And so it seems really hard. And in fact, culture works against these three things in a big way, right? Um, it, you know, being, being joyful in hope, 
I talked about the news cycle, like the news cycle, social media, those are not life-giving, hope-giving things, and yet those are the two things that a lot of us are consuming daily. Like, the food has to match the outcome. If we're eating that stuff all the time and that's really what we let inside, that's not going to produce that in us. So not to say those are bad things or to cut those out of your life completely, but just to be aware, like, if that's our diet, like, the outcome is, is pretty predictable. Um, being patient in difficulty. I feel like we, especially in America and the Western world, have this mentality that when something is right, wrong, we have to fix it. Maybe even as a man too, right? Like if Katie says something's wrong, I'm supposed to listen, gotta, but I try yeah. and fix it. Like I just right. want it to be fixed, right? Yeah. So like feeling like I have to fix everything, every difficulty, if something's wrong, there can't be any good in that. I have to fix it right now. And realizing that there's often good things in the struggle and God grows us through those things. And so being patient in that. Um, is so key. And then the last one, really quickly, just prayer. You know, so often when stuff goes wrong, prayer is kind of like the third or fourth or fifth option that we think of, and God wants it to be the first thing that we go to him with. And so it's not like, well, I'll try my stuff, and then if that doesn't work, I'll pray about it. It's like, no, we are faithful in prayer. Like when something happens, good or bad, we take it to the Lord, and that's our first weapon that we break out against something. And so um, just wanted to reaffirm you guys that these aren't natural things, and they're hard for me, and I don't do them well. Um, but they're things that we have to take stock of and do well if we're gonna, if we're gonna live the rest of these out. Yeah, how many of you, if you get so focused on the news and the news cycle and what's going on, or you're just in all these Facebook posts, how many of you when, you, when you finish spending three hours in front of cable news, you just feel a lot more joyful and hopeful and a lot more patient and, and prayerful, right? Those things actually counteract what Paul's talking about and really, we need to really, I think, those three things really are. We That's why like you're important. launching your own news network. Right? That is That's why I'm launching. I'm launching the joy, the, the joy patience uh, network. Oh, the, yeah, the, the G network. Uh huh. The G. On the G. Yeah, the G network. Like Oprah's got the O. You're the G. Yes, you're gonna rival the her. G. Yeah, yeah good. I'm sure he has a lot that to worry about. So, sorry. <laughs> and we, as we looked at this, we really felt like if we can't get this, not just twelve, but if we can't get loving each other right. How in the world are we going to love people that are outside the family? So right. we, that, we don't want to just go over that too fast. It's really important. But what we really want to get to is that 14 to 21. And really, in, when looking at 14 to 21, verse 21 to me is the big idea, the key thing Paul was trying to communicate, which is this. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That was really his focus. Because I am telling you, here's what Satan wants us to do, Right? Satan wants us to react to the fact that we're now, now exiles in our culture. He wants us to get angry and to rant and to rave and to fight the culture with, with the same anger and vitriol they're, they're spewing our way, right? That we're fighting back with the same thing. That's what his desire is that we would be overcome by evil. But what Paul is calling us to is he's saying, you, you guys, instead of you being the, the reactors, you be the ones who are the actors. You be the ones who engage culture in a way that you are seeking to overcome culture with good. That, that we're to be the initiators, we're to set the temperature of any engagement, that we're to be the pace setters. So that's really what Paul's, that's the overall thing Paul's calling us to that we're gonna get to in a minute, the four ways to do that. But what he's saying is, is I want you to be an overcomer for good. Yeah. Sometimes it's so easy to be a thermometer in culture and just match the temperature of the room. Um, but we need to be the thermostat, right? Like we set the pace and culture will, will match us if, if Jesus is... Is working in it like we can't just see a rant and jump in and get angry as well yeah yeah so how do we do that practically I think there's four things we're gonna see in this text of how we do it four ways to be um, an overcomer um, and 
let me just say quickly, when you're reading 14 to 21, the Sermon on the Mount just pops up. It's so much. You're like, Paul is so much reflecting the Sermon on the Mount. You preached on this, what, a few months ago? Yeah, I got to preach on Luke. Yeah, and, and so much of what Paul says here matches that. It's this upside-down kingdom. That was kind of why I talked about is the way that Jesus wants us to live is so opposite of what culture tells us is normal or right or healthy. And so just being comfortable loving your enemy, basically doing the opposite of every natural feeling that you have, um, not only is what Jesus says, but it, it, it's what Paul is calling us to here. So all that to say, as we go through these four things, it's okay if your reaction is like, man, that sounds really hard, or I don't really want to do that, or, you know, that kind of stinks, because it, it, it is tough. Like, if we read this and you're like, oh, that's me all the time, well, probably not, but it's okay if this is tough is what we're, what we're trying to say. So here's the four things. Number one, the first way Paul says we can be an overcomer is in verse 16, the second half of verse 16. And it is to be humble, to be humble. In verse 16, after saying live in harmony with one another, he says do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. And I really want to tell you this is so much the gospel and it is so easy, I think, that when we're looking at culture, for us to take a, a position of condescension or looking down or feeling like we're better than people, we talked about that, to, to like, I feel like we're, we're the ones taking the high ground, and humility can totally disappear. And I want you to know, Paul is calling us that if we're going to engage the culture well, civilly, we have to start with humility. Um, and to me, that's the gospel, that's the cross that the, the ground at the cross is level. I am no better than anybody else. I was a sinner who was saved by his grace. I needed his grace. That everybody is a sinner. It doesn't matter who we are. Um, and still need his grace, right? We, and we still need it. Yeah. And so that, that I have a lot more in common with every human being than I don't, right? That the reality is that we're all sinners in need of his grace. And so humility is so important, and so that's the first way we can be an over overcomer for good is we've got to be humble. Right. Um, yeah, it's so easy to feel morally superior, and yet we, we look at Isaiah 6, right? We, we see Isaiah coming into the throne room of God, and when he is his closest to God, he is the most aware of his sin. And so if we're, we're living in the sense of like, man, I actually feel like I got it going on, and I feel kind of better than this group of people or whatever because I don't do those things or believe those things, you, you're probably further from God than you think you are. It, that graphic you had was so good that basically the closer we get to the cross, the more we see our sin, and we're just aware that like kind of this woe is me thing, and so that's a really healthy stance to have. That and I would write down Isaiah six if I was taking notes because every day, not that we sit in our sin and we're like, man, I, I'm such a sinner, I feel so bad, but it's like you have have a healthy view of your sin when you're following Jesus well, and it's never. If you ever feel too good for the cross, then something's gone wrong, you know. Yep. So. We all want to be overcomers for good. That's how we are civilly going to engage our culture. So the first way is to be humble. I want you to say that with me. So would you say be humble? Be, be humble. humble. Okay, number two is in verse 18. Um, the second way to be an overcomer for good is to live at peace with everyone. And it says in verse 18, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. If it's possible. There's always sometimes it's not but don't let that be an easy way out because with most people, it is possible to live at peace with them. And I really think we have to take this seriously. I think it's easy to take that, oh, if it's possible as an excuse to not be a peaceable person, but we're called to be peaceable. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 9, blessed are the peacemakers because they'll be called the children of God. In Hebrews 12, 14, that author says, make every effort to live in peace with everyone 
Almost identical to Paul's words. And in 1 Timothy 2, 2 to 4, Paul says to li- we are to live peaceful and quiet lives in all goodness and holiness. And he says to do that, to live peaceably, is good. It pleases God our Savior who wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. So that's the second one is, is for us to, to be people who, who live at peace um, with others. Garen, that's good, but can I, can I push back and ask a question? Because... I, have, I feel this creeping up in me, and maybe a few people will feel the same way. That You say live at peace with everyone, which is good, and we should do that. But living in a culture where we see so much wrong, where there are so many things that are just so against what God wants, does that mean that I am not allowed to be angry about some things, or I'm not allowed to speak out about some things? Because there are some things that, that happen in the world that I am angry about, because I know it grieves God's heart, and it grieves my heart. I'm just like, man... I, I want to fight against that. I don't want to scream. I'm so mad about it. I feel kind of like I'm not allowed to do that if I have to live at peace. So yeah, can, bo- can I live at peace and also be really upset about some stuff that's happening yeah. in culture? And I think verse 9 answers that where he says, hate what is evil. Again, not hate. It's, lo- it's hate, hate sin, but love the sinner, okay? But to hate what is evil, to cling to what's good, to be, not be lacking in zeal. So yeah, we, we should be angry at the things that make God angry. To live at peace doesn't mean that I'm not angry at things. But what it means is, is I know the difference between hating things that are happening and seeing people as different than that and as somebody to be loved and that I'm going to strive to live as much as possible at peace with the people around me. Yeah. Um, so it's really about, yeah, hating sin, but it's about loving sinners. That's what I think Paul is So it's is not saying. about laying down. Nope, not right. about laying down at all. That's yeah. not what Paul's talking about. I think Ephesians 6 has so much to say about this because in that it, it talks about what our fight is against and what it's not against. Our fight is not against flesh and blood. It is against principalities. It is against spiritual forces. And so um, you said something this week that stuck with me all week. It was really good. It's that if someone has flesh and blood, they're not my enemy. Like they can't be my enemy. They were made in God's image. I am to, to love them, right? They are not the enemy. They are a victim of the enemy. Yep. Um, and that mentality is so scarce but it is so needed that someone who disagrees with you in any way or is on the other side of the aisle in some way, like they are not the enemy and to villainize or dehumanize them for any reason is so not only against the mission of the church, it's against the heart of God. And it's just not, it's not what we need at all. So there's, a, there's absolutely a difference between being a culture warrior and a prayer warrior, yeah. right? Like to wage war against everything that's wrong on a cultural level and just say, I'm gonna fight against this, like that's one thing, but to take everything to God in prayer, to be faithful in prayer, right? And say, Lord, I'm going to give this to you. I'm going to, I'm going to love them in a new way. I'm going to find a way to be you to them. Like, those are two really different things. And sometimes we feel really vindicated in being a culture warrior when we actually need to just go to God in prayer and see what is, what is his move that he would have for us. Yeah, I think that's great. So to be an overcomer for good in our culture, to live civilly in a lost culture, we must, number one, what? Be humble. Would you say that again? Be, be humble. humble. Secondly, we must live at peace. Can we say that? Live at peace. peace. And the third one is this. It's in verses 17, 19 to 20. The third way to be an overcomer for God is to stay out of the judgment seat. To stay out of the judgment seat. In 17, he says, do not repay anyone evil. Don't repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it's mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. And that's a lot about... um, revenge and all of that, but I, I want to tell you, it's not just about taking revenge, but anytime we are not humble and we be, are condescending in the way we look at people who are outside of the faith, 
we have actually stepped into the judgment seat of God and we're sitting in a place on judgment over them and over people. And I want you to know that God's judgment seat, it's way too big for me and I don't belong there. It is not my, jo- my job to be the judge on everybody around me, especially people who are, who are not a part of this family. And I want to tell you, when you crawl up into that judgment seat and condescension becomes your attitude, uh, or for any of us, becomes our attitude towards people in the culture, that corrupts your heart. And people in the culture see that and they know it. That's, that's the number one thing you hear about what people think about people who follow Jesus is we're condescending and we're judgmental. I think it's because we climb into that judgment seat. So let's leave, let's leave the judgment seat to him. He'll, he'll take care of all of that, okay? And let's, in humility, try to live at peace with everybody. Yeah. And the other thing is, why do we as believers look outside of church and expect people to live the way that we do? That's a question I've always wondered. Like... Yeah, of course the, the, the people who don't go to church and don't know Jesus, like, of course they're going to cuss. Of course they're going to have different values than me. Of course they're going to think differently than I do. If they didn't, like, I wouldn't need Jesus, right? So 1 Corinthians 3, Paul says, why are you expecting non-believers to have the values of believers? And I just want to remind us all that and remind myself of that. Like, we don't hold the world to the same standard because we can't. We would be, we'd be out there with them if Jesus hadn't changed our hearts. And so it's not about condescension or judgment. It's about just bringing them into the fold and not having high expectations of them before that happens because, like, what do you think is going yeah. to be the case? So let's stay out of the judgment seat. Can we do that? Can we be humble? Can we live at peace? Can we hit those? So the first one is be humble. Can you say that with me? Be humble. Okay. And then secondly, we live at peace. Live at peace. And then number three, we stay out of the judgment seat. Stay, stay out, out of the judgment, judgment. seat. Good cool. job. So, okay. Garen, these first three that you've talked about, they are... Um, they're internal. Yeah, they're kind of internal they're attitudes. Things, things that happen inside of me. Yeah. But this next one is external, right? And it's almost, you know, we said you have to get verse 12 right before you're going to get the rest of this white. It's kind of a prerequisite. These three are almost prereqs to doing the fourth one well. Yep. And so it's that same kind of thing like, okay, I've got to do one, two, and three well so that I can do four. And if I try and jump straight to four, it's going to fail. It's going to be really hard. So, yep. yeah, hit us with number So here it is, number four. The fourth and final way that Paul's telling us we can be an overcomer for good in engaging culture is, is this, positively engage. Positively engage. Um, and that's the whole point of verse 14 and 15. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. And then down to verse 20, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you'll reap burning coals on his head. And so that's what this call is. is the call is, is that you, we positively engage. And that's what it means to bless. To, you cannot bless people by staying in your house and not engaging people. So to bless is to positively engage. And none of us probably curse anybody, but I think a lot of us villainize people who are outside of our camp, right? It's easy to do, to talk them down in that condescending. That is the opposite. That's like cursing. It's the opposite of blessing. Um, We have to move towards people in love and to engage them in our culture. And that is the least natural thing. Like if someone's disagreeing with you or they put something on Facebook you disagree with or they're the kind of person that just rubs you the wrong way, the last thing you want to do is move closer to them, right? Like we all feel that. Um, but that's exactly what, what Paul and Jesus are calling us to, that when I have a disagreement with you or we're, we don't line up and I know there's something here that needs fixed, my flesh says, just get away, give it space, you don't need to deal with them. And Jesus would say, hey, pull them in closer. This is a real opportunity to demonstrate the gospel. 
and to demonstrate that your life is about more than just you and your feelings. It's actually about the love that I have for that person. So that's got to be the reaction. When I disagree with anyone on something, it's not to, to retract, but right. it's to pull it's them It's to in. actually engage. Yeah. And that, again, it requires action. It requires that we're the ones in pursuit, that we pursue people. And that requires agape love. That's why in, when Jesus, this is all from the Sermon on the Mount that Paul's reflecting on, right? He says, not just uh, when, with our enemies, in Luke he says, bless them, but he also says, love them and pray for them. And it's that same agape word in verse 9. To bless is to love. And again, the, the definition I most love of agape is, it is the steadfast, sacrificial zeal that seeks the true good of another. And that's what bless means is, I sacrificially, steadfastly, with zeal, I am seeking the good of another person. And that's what Paul is calling us to, is to positively engage people um, in our culture. And is that not the gospel? Did God, we just did that with communion. Did God not actively pursue us? and engage us when we had left and abandoned him. Is that not the gospel? And so that's what he's calling us to. And to me, verse 15 is important. Here's how I know that I'm living to bless people who are, who are the outsiders or whatever. He says that I can rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. Um, isn't the normal attitude towards somebody you consider an enemy is if, if they get hurt or so, doesn't, so, something doesn't go right, you're really satisfied and you're like, they deserve that, right? Isn't that kind of internally, isn't that the normal attitude? And what Paul is saying is, here's how you know you're seeking to positively engage and bless somebody who doesn't know me, is the fact that when things go bad for them, that you weep with them, and when things go well for them, you rejoice with them. To me, that's kind of the crucial test. Which is why you uh, rejoiced when the Chiefs won the Super Bowl, because you were like, hey. Uh, yeah, yeah, I was... So excited yeah, about you that. You bought a hoodie. Uh-huh. And like, the, the hoodie. You the never whole, really wear the homes, it, but you said uniform you bought and all that. It, so. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, if I were to turn that around, all you Chiefs fans, here's what that means that when the Broncos win, you're throwing a party, okay? You're calling me, buying me a Starbucks coffee. It's only coffee. twice a year, so you guys can handle that. That'll be okay. <laughs> that every time Drew Locke steps in the field, you're weeping when I weep every time he's out there, okay? That's, that's practically what that means. But I want to get really specific. As we talked, we want to get to what we think is really an important thing that Paul was saying in positively engaging. We want to get, not just get out there and engage. Paul quotes Proverbs, and in Proverbs, he talks about feeding your enemy and giving them something to drink. And I think that's crucial because if you go up to verse 13, he ends that section talking about practicing hospitality. And I want to tell you, the best way to engage somebody who is lost and doesn't know Jesus positively to bless them is to show hospitality to them. And so here's what we're gonna ask of you today. We wanna ask that you guys would practically lean into one person that you perceive as an enemy, okay? I'm not saying they are, but that you perceive that way, that you practically lean into to one person. So this is not an easy Sunday, sorry. If you wanted an easy come to church and stay the same Sunday, you came to the wrong church today. Because, yeah, we're gonna ask everyone to sit and we're gonna give you maybe 20 or 30 seconds and just think, man, who's somebody that I oppose or I see their social media and it just grinds me the wrong way or I know we're not the same and it bugs me. Think about that person and think about a way to invite them in, to bring them in, whether it's inviting them over to your house or grabbing coffee um, and just leaning into them because that's what Jesus would have us do. So let's just take a few seconds and and who's that person? Yeah, having them over for a meal. And we're having them over the meal because we're going to convince them in that meal. We're going to convince right. them that they're wrong. That's oh, the whole no, point no, of the no, meal, no, right? No, no. Right, Jordan? We don't we're gonna, we're gonna argue. We, we invite them over to argue and our so, turf. So, Darren, I don't know where you went to seminary, but we love without an agenda, Garen. We have to love without an agenda, so that's really key. 
when I think about the person that I'm going to invite out to coffee or have, have over to my house and play with my kids and all that, um, I just love them to love them. Like, I'm just good to them because Jesus was good to me. It's not I invite them in my home, I lock the door, and I'm like, all right, <laughs> now I'm going to tell them what they need to know, you know? Um, we just bless them to bless yeah. them. And, and it's really to hear their it's story, about. and it's to get to know them as a real human being, right? Yeah. And to know where, where do they come from, and how do they come to the yeah. things that they're Can we at, take so. just like 10 seconds and think? Yeah, let's do that. Because I, I feel like someone's like, well, I'll think about that later, and then we won't, because we don't want to. But if we make them think about it now, make me think about it now, I might actually do it. So, so 10 seconds. We want you to think, who is a person in your life, a neighbor, somebody who in your mind is like an enemy that you can invite to coffee or your home. So take a minute, come up with a name. Hold on, Steve just texted me. Invite you out for lunch. Are you free for lunch? (laughs) Steve, I am. My phone's back there, it's probably like blowing. It's probably blowing blowing up up right now. now. Yours is blowing up. Okay, um, maybe I'll ignore those. Yeah. So here's what we want to do. We, we want to show you, so can we do a quick summary of those four things? If we want to learn to live, if we really want to live civilly, with conviction, but civilly, because that's really what this text is about, engaging a lost culture in a way that can make an impact, we've got to do four things. Number one is be humble. Number two, live at peace. Number three, get off, stay out of the judgment seat. And number four, positively engage. I want to show you, we want to show you a video of somebody who was positively engaged, who was invited to a home for hospitality and how it changed their life for the gospel. Her name is Rosario Butterfield. I don't know if you know her story, but we want to take a few minutes and we want to watch her story. With no prohibitions or constraints, by the time I had graduated from Ohio State with my PhD in English Literature and Critical Theory, I left the Buckeye State with my first lesbian partner. We moved to New York for me to begin a tenure-track position in the English department at Syracuse University. My life as a lesbian seemed normal. I considered it an enlightened, chosen path. Lesbian sexuality seemed like a cleaner and a more moral sexual practice. Always preferring symmetry to asymmetry I was sure I had found my real self. What happened to my Catholic training? I believed now that it was anti-intellectual and superstitious. The name Jesus, which had rolled off my tongue in a little girl's prayer and then rolled off my back in college, now made me recoil in anger. As a professor of English and women's studies, I tired of students who believed that knowing Jesus meant knowing little else. Christians seemed like bad readers to me, ironic given, I thought, that the Bible, they believed the Bible was the true truth. Christians used the Bible in the way that Marxists call vulgar, to end a conversation rather than to deepen it. But the most frustrating thing to me about Christians was that they simply would not leave consenting adults alone. I cared about morality and justice and compassion. 
as a 19th century scholar fervent for the worldviews of Freud, Hegel, Marx, and Darwin, I strove to stand with the disempowered. And my life at this time was happy and meaningful and full. My next lesbian partner and I shared many vital interests, AIDS activism, children's health and literacy, golden retriever rescue, our Unitarian Universalist Church, just to name a few. It was hard to argue that she and I were anything but good citizens and caregivers. My friends and I simply never had a gay agenda. And when Christians accused me of this, I would say that my gay agenda involved really scary things like feeding the poor, housing the homeless, and teaching reading to the illiterate. The LGBT community values hospitality and applies it with skill and sacrifice and integrity. And indeed, I honed the hospitality gifts that I use today as a pastor's wife in my queer community. After my tenure book was written, I began writing another book, because I'm compulsive in that way. Um, and this one was on the religious right and their politics of hatred against people like me. To do this, I began reading the Bible while looking out for some Bible scholar to help me wade through this complex book. I took note that the Bible was an engaging literary display of almost every genre and trope and type. It had edgy poetry, deep and complex philosophy, and compelling narrative stories. It also embodied a worldview that I hated. Sin, repentance, Sodom and Gomorrah? I thought that was absurd. At this time, the promise keepers came to town. It's you who's laughing. <laughs> they parked their little circus at the university, and um, I was on this war against stupid, you know. And so I wrote an article. I published it in the local newspaper. It was 1997. The article generated many rejoinders, so many that I kept a Xerox box, remember those days, on each side of my desk, one for hate mail and one for fan mail. <laughs> I could still do that today, only it all comes on email. One letter that I received simply defiled my filing system. It was from Ken Smith, the pastor of the Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian Church. It was a kind and inquiring letter. Ken did not, did not argue with my article. Rather, he gently invited me to examine the presuppositions that undergirded it. In his letter, he shared his love for the Bible, his concern that college students were not reading the Bible as part of our literature curriculum, and he described Jesus as someone who entered into history, not someone who emerged from it. I thought that was insane. I believed that people proceed from history and are shaped, for good or for ill, by the culture that molds them. Well, I didn't know what to do with his article, so I threw it away. I mean, in the recycling bin, of course. You know. <laughs> Don't think I'm a bad person. <laughs> what do you think of me? 
And later that night, I found myself on my hands and knees fishing it out of the department's recycling bin and putting it back on my desk where it stared at me for a week, confronting me with the worldview divide that demanded a response, especially if I was going to write a book on this subject. You see, as a postmodern intellectual, I operated from a historical materialist worldview. But Christianity is a supernatural one. And if I was going to understand how this book, the Bible, got so many people off track, and how this man, Jesus, persuaded so many people to follow him, Ken's letter showed me that I needed to understand Christianity as a supernatural idea. At this point in my life, the category of the supernatural was simply reserved for Stephen King novels. And he was a big donor to the English department at Syracuse. (laughs) So we were taught never to bite the hand that feeds us and where you could tuck one of those juicy ones in to your 19th century curriculum. Why, you must do it. At this time, I was also deeply suspicious of both the motives and the worldview that Christians espoused. Oh, I had seen plenty of Bible verses on placards at gay pride marches, that Christians who protested against me and mocked me at gay pride day were happy that I and everyone I loved was going to hell is as clear as the sky is blue. But you see, Ken's letter did not mock, it actually engaged. And from his letter, Ken really seemed to me to be palpably different from those Christians who hid behind placards at Gay Pride Day. And so when he invited me to dinner at his house to discuss these matters more fully, I accepted. My motives at the time were perfectly clear. Surely this would be good for my research. But something else actually happened. Ken and his wife, Floy, and I became friends. They entered my world. They met my friends. We did book exchanges. We talked openly about sexuality and politics, and they did not act as if such conversations were polluting them. They did not treat me like a blank slate. And when we ate together, Ken prayed in a way that I had never heard before. His prayers were intimate and vulnerable. He repented of his sin in front of me. He thanked God for all things. Ken's God was holy and firm, yet full of mercy. And at my first meal at their home, Ken and Floyd omitted two important steps in the rule book of how Christians should deal with a heathen like me. You know, everybody knows the rule book. I knew the rule book. And I wondered if I was chopped liver. You know, number one, They did not share the gospel with me. Imagine that. They took the risk that I was going to get back in my little truck and drive a mile home, and I wasn't going to get hit by a train and die. They took that risk, people. And number two, they did not invite me to church. And because of these omissions to the Christian rule book, as I had come to understand it, I felt that when... Ken extended his hand to me in friendship. It was safe for me to close mine in his. You see, I wasn't Ken's project. I was Ken's neighbor. This was not friendship evangelism. This was friendship. That letter that Ken wrote to me initiated two years of bringing the church to me from Ken and Floyd's dining room table. Hospitality.
That was the key to all that. She ended up becoming a follower of Jesus, gave her life, married a pastor. She is actually, the church that they pastor is actually in Durham, North Carolina, where Carissa is. And Carissa has, I think, if I remember right, has been one time, um, has visited that church where her husband pastors. Um, Isn't that a powerful story? Isn't that a powerful story? We must become overcomers for good. We have to engage our culture with humility, seeking to live at peace, staying off that judgment seat, and that we are living to bless people, and specifically to have people in our homes and out for coffee. Because if, if, we, if we engage culture the way Satan wants us to, it's all about firefights and anger and rants and all of that, and I want to tell you that undermines everything that we're trying to proclaim about Jesus and the one who he is. And so we need to take Paul's words really seriously. And can you imagine... Um, in a very highly civil, uncivil culture. Can you imagine if we were known as the most civil people in Emporia, the people who treated people with the most love and kindness and respect? Can you imagine the impact that that would have if we stood way above, head and shoulders above everybody else in that? And can you imagine if we took the amount of time we put into Facebook and posting things and doing all that, all the time and energy in that, all the time and energy on cable news or whatever it is, just hours of, of, of looking at the hot topics that we're interested in, of scouring the internet for the things that bug us. If we took all of that time and all of that energy and if we put it into real people and had real people into our homes and loved them and blessed them and got to know them, can you, and we, we were blessing people one person, one place at a time, can you imagine the impact we would have? Can you imagine the impact we'd have for the gospel? So let us be that kind of people. Pat and I... While we were in Colorado, visited one of our, the old missionary couples that were here uh, that we've supported over the years. We've become very close to them, see them every time we go there. And as we've talked over the last several years, know a lot about their life and they about ours. And I knew that um, two years ago, a same-sex couple had moved in two doors down from them. And once they had moved in and they realized that, the first thing that this couple did is they had them over for dinner. And then that became a regular habit to where they would not only have them over for dinner, but they would have them over for game nights and do all sorts of stuff. And as they got to know each other and they blessed them, they've been able to, to share more and more about their lives and who they are. And it was, I've known about this story. And it was really cool. When we were there just a couple of weeks ago, we were at their house and we were just sitting talking and as we're talking, there's a knock at the door. And Scott goes and opens the door. And standing there is the couple holding a blueberry pie and a new game for them to play. And they just said, we love you guys so much, we want to give this to you. And so they did and they left. And I got to see the fruit, the ongoing fruit of years of them positively engaging culture and seeking to bless people through hospitality. So can you imagine if we were that kind of a community? that kind of community. Would you stand with me? Father, make us people. It is so hard to know how to engage our culture. We're living as exiles. It doesn't feel normal or right to be kind of, we're the outsiders and it's hard to feel that way and we just don't always know what to do but just help us to follow Paul's words, Lord, that we would be people who are humble, who strive in every, with every ounce of our body to, to live at peace, that we would be people, Lord, who just stay out of that judgment seat and don't live in condescension looking down on people and above all selves, that we would positively engage people who are around us, Lord, through hospitality. So make us that kind of people. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So 12th, as always, you are sent. This week you are sent to be overcomers.
for good. And so let us be those kind of people out in this community.